You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. If you have a Bible, I invite you to go to Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, and if you are a guest with us today, whether you're here in person or watching online, uh, my name is Jared. On behalf of the pastors and the members, I want to welcome you. Um, If you want more information about us as a church, um, one of the best ways you can get that information is just go to our website, crossingparagold.com, or if you're watching online or whatever platform you're on, there should be a link that'll drop right now in the comment section. Click on that, fill some information about yourself, and uh, if you're here in person and want to learn more about us, there's a little card in the back of your seat, a little pouch. Grab that, put the information on it, leave it in your seat, and that'll just be a way of us knowing that you're with us, and uh, it'll be a way that we can try to love you and serve you to the best of our ability. Um, this morning is a historic moment in the life of the Crossing Church. Um, for the last almost eight years now, every time that I get up to preach, I have very detailed notes, about seven pages of notes on my iPad. And uh, today, um, I'm going to try to bat left-handed on purpose. I, I just basically got some chicken scratch on uh, some paper um, because I, I really believe that for me personally, I tend to at times depend more on just my own abilities than at times I do on the Holy Spirit. And so um, what I want to do today is I'm just going to experiment in the name of Jesus. I'm going to get up here somewhat vulnerable, and uh, I'm teaching on a topic that I have taught on before, and and I just wanted to make sure that when I share this today that it really is out of just the overflow of my own heart, that it's not just a bunch of information being dumped on you. And my hope is in doing this is at the end of the day, um, this is not just a cliche for me. I really do want our church to be built around Jesus. Uh, not me, not a personality, not anybody else. And so this is just a way this morning for me to try to get myself out of the way. It'll probably be less impressive than uh, sermons in the past. Um, but my hope is that the power of God will be shown through my weakness. Because I really believe at the end of the day who you need more than anything, uh, what you need more than anything is Jesus Christ. Uh, he really is where your hope is and he's all that you've got. And there's nothing that I could say or do or no joke I could tell or story that could ever capture uh, the beauty of Jesus. We just need the Holy Spirit to do that. And so uh, that being said, uh, Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. Go ahead and turn there if you have a Bible. We are kicking off a new series that we have entitled Resilient. Do we have our sermon series graphic by chance that we can put on the screen? I don't know if we have it. Yeah, there it is because I want to show uh, you a picture, uh, explain this picture in just a moment. But um, whenever you think about this word resilient, um, I want you to think about this in just a moment. The reason that this series is so important for us is because, I don't know if you've noticed this, but our world seems to be on fire right now. Uh, anybody else notice that? Uh, not only are we in the middle of a global pandemic, um, but we also see morality continue to decay, uh, mental illness continue to climb. Uh, the family continues to break down. Racial tension continues to build. And it's in the midst of, of all of that, as a church in America continues to decline, we really believe more than ever um, that God needs to raise up resilient disciples. 
And this word resilient, according to the dictionary, and I wrote it down here, is this. To be resilient is to be able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. So think about the, the baobab tree, which if you go back to our little sermon series graphic, um, I had never heard of the baobab tree before, but that's what you see on this picture. Uh, one of our staff members learned about this and shared it with us, and we were like, oh, that's perfect for this graphic. But here's the thing about the baobab tree. It actually is uh, found in Africa and South Asia, and it is so resilient that it is able to survive for 5,000 years in a part of the country or part of the world where little to nothing else can actually live. And the thing that's really cool about this tree is actually several things, but one of them is it produces the most nutrient-dense fruit in the world. And unlike another tree, when other trees drop their fruit, the fruit immediately begins to die. The baobab tree, when it drops its fruit, the fruit stays alive for three years. That's crazy. Uh, Not only does it have the most nutrient-dense and resilient fruit in the world, but also its bark is used for clothing, and the seeds from this tree is used for medicinal purposes. It's used to repair skin and reduce inflammation. So think about this. Because the baobab tree is so resilient, even in a place where little to nothing else is surviving because of the harsh conditions, this tree is able to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and heal the sick. This is why locals refer to this tree literally as the tree of life. Now, here's the reason I share that. I really believe that Jesus wants to do that in the church. He wants to create men and women that are resilient like that. Men and women in the midst of this harsh environment we've now find ourselves in who not just simply survive but also thrive and as a result produce a fruit that other people will be able to look at our lives and taste and see how good God really is. And so here's our hope. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to dive into this series we've entitled Resilient. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at seven values or seven characteristics, if you will, of what we think it means to be a resilient disciple. And I really hope, again, this is not just an information dump. Uh, I really want you to know that this is where we're moving as a church. Uh, What we're going to talk about over the next seven weeks is what we hope everybody in our church who sticks around will actually embody. Okay, so this is a really big deal. And today as we get started, um, I, I realize that if we're going to learn how to be resilient disciples, we need to first start with talking about what does it mean to be a disciple? Because I think there's a lot of confusion around that. And so that's my goal this morning, to help you identify when you leave here what it actually means to be a disciple. So when someone comes to you, wherever they're at, and they ask you, what does it mean to be a disciple? You can tell them with your own mouth, here is what it means. Okay, if we don't understand that, we're not going to be able to ever be resilient disciples. So that said, Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to start today. I'm going to read in the beginning from several different places in Mark. And uh, I have an NIV translation, if that's helpful for you. Uh, also, the notes are on the version Bible app, but I'll be honest, you're probably not going to be able to follow them. And good luck to you if they're Teddy, uh, as you try to navigate on the screen. And so, uh, Mark chapter 1, um, we're going to uh, start, let's see, in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James and Zebedee and his brother John in a boat 
preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, and they hired and they hired men and followed him. Look over uh, Mark chapter two. Turn to Mark chapter two, verse thirteen. Mark two, verse thirteen. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd followed him. And he began to teach them. Um, this is really important that Jesus began to teach them. I just want to say this real fast. When we think of Jesus, a lot of times we think of him as the Christ or the Messiah or the Savior or God in the flesh. And all those are true. But you need to realize that if you were in the first century, when you would have thought of Jesus, the very first thing that came to your mind is you would have thought of him as a teacher, as a rabbi. In fact, of the 90 different times that people talk directly to Jesus in the Gospels, what do you think they call him? Rabbi or teacher. Okay, so we'll come back to that in just a moment. But Jesus began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law saw were, uh, were Pharisees, or were the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, I love this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Look with me in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called, he called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. And you might want to underline that or circle it. We'll come back to it later. That he might be, they might be with him and that they might send them out to, or that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. One other place. Uh, go with me to Mark chapter 8. Flip over to Mark chapter 8 and look in verse 34. Mark 8 verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? As we read those passages of scripture, did you notice a pattern that began to emerge? If you notice, the invitation from Jesus is not just simply to believe in him. The invitation is not simply to pray a prayer, to ask him into your heart, and then to die and go to heaven. But rather, when you read in story after story in the gospel, the invitation is Jesus says, come and follow me. Come and be my disciple. Now, the Greek word for disciple is the word mathetes, and it can be translated as disciple. can also be translated as student or follower, but some scholars would argue that the best translation for this word is an apprentice. And the reason a lot of scholars like this word is because when you think of a student, what do you think of? You think of someone who sits in a room and just listens to someone talk. So like, that's not a very good you know, explanation of what a disciple is. Or when you think of you know, maybe a, a follower, now in the world of social media, what do you think of? Someone who follows you on Instagram or, you know, or on Facebook or wherever, Twitter. 
And, and so what many scholars will say is that apprentice really sums up what it means to devote all of your life to Jesus. And what you need to know um, is, is, you know, whatever translation you end up with, whether you like apprentice best or disciple, what I want you to hear is this. Jesus did not come up with this idea. Let me say that again for those of you who grew up in the church. Jesus did not invent discipleship or apprenticeship. Uh, in fact, um, Jesus was not the first rabbi with disciples. There were many rabbis with disciples before Jesus ever walked on the scene, and there were many rabbis with disciples after Jesus left. And so whenever Jesus actually appeared in the first century, um, discipleship was not only incredibly common, it was actually the apex of the Jewish educational system. And this is really important that you understand this, because if not, what we tend to do is when we think about discipleship, we pluck it out of its first century context, and we just kind of make it up to mean whatever we want it to mean. But you need to know that Jesus followed this first century Jewish educational system. So if you'll allow me, let me nerd out on you for like five minutes to try to explain this to you, okay? And if you like the History Channel, you're really going to like the next five minutes. If you don't, I apologize. It's just going to be five minutes. Hang with me. I promise you I am going somewhere. In the first century, there were three levels to this Jewish educational system. The first level was what was referred to as a Beit Safar, or as it could be uh, referred to as the House of Book. And the whole point of Beit Safar is it was basically like our grade school. It's where you learn to read. It's where you learn to write. It's where you learned arithmetic. But the main thing that you learned, think about this. The main thing that you were to learn in Beit Safar is you were to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Word by word, line by line. So if you have a Bible... That is Genesis through Deuteronomy, completely memorized, listen, listen, by the age of 11, okay? Now, most students after Beit Safar would, uh, they would drop out of school, okay? And uh, if you were a girl, you would begin to be prepared to get married. You'd be married by the time you were 12 or 13 years old. And if you were a boy, you would leave school and you would go apprentice under your father to learn the family business. But if you were the best of the best, from the school, you would move from Beit Safar on to what they call Beit Talmud, which was also referred to as the House of Learning. Now, the House of Learning was right off of the synagogue. It was led by a full-time teacher, and you would study under him. And here was the main objective in this Beit Talmud. The main objective was for you to memorize, and think about this again if you have your Bible. The goal was to memorize Genesis all the way through Malachi, line by line, word by word, to have it memorized and also to actually understand it, to be able to teach it to others. Now, as you can imagine, uh, most people at this point were done, okay? Like it was it. And, and at the very best, you might become a scribe, but most people would still leave. And by the way, women were not allowed in this. It was just men that were in bait time mood. But most of the time, the men, the boys that would come out of it would just go again, learn the family business. But if you were the best of the best. If you were like summa cum laude, like if you were like Ivy League, like level, um, then you would actually have a chance to become a mathetes, 
to be a disciple. You would be invited by a rabbi to actually come and follow him. But here's the thing, before you could follow him, you had to go through this intensive interview process. Like, so think about trying to get into an Ivy League times 10, okay? He would basically sit down with you and he'd say, all right, do you have this passage of scripture memorized? If so, just give it to me from memory. Uh, tell me about the Torah. What's your take on the Nephilim in Genesis chapter six? Uh, what's your perspective on this? How is your Hebrew? Let me, right, he would just go through all of that. And if through the interview process, he looked at you and he's like, you know what? Like, I think this kid's got it. Like, he's got the smarts, he's got the work ethic, he's got the character, like, he's got all of the giftness, then he would say, okay, come follow me, come and be my disciple. Now, hypothetical scenario, let's assume that's you. You're the best of the best, and you get invited to go be a disciple to the rabbi in the first century. If that was you, you would devote your life, you would reorient everything around three goals, okay? Goal number one, if you were a disciple, would be to be with your rabbi, to be with your rabbi. And when I say be with your rabbi, don't think Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at one hour in this classroom. But when I say be with your rabbi, you need to realize this was literally every minute of every day. You would sleep beside your rabbi. You would wake up beside your rabbi. You would eat breakfast with your rabbi, lunch with your rabbi, dinner with your rabbi, work with your rabbi, walk with your rabbi. Literally, you would spend every minute of every day with your rabbi. And this is why there was a first century blessing that went like this. May the dust of your rabbi's feet cover you. Because if you think about it, in the first century, there weren't paved roads. They were all dirt roads. And you weren't in a classroom. Your classroom was literally like life on life following this man. And so the blessing was this. Maybe if you're fortunate enough, you will be at the front of the pack of the disciples. And you'll be so close to your, uh, to your rabbi that he will kick up the dust from his own feet and cover you by the end of the day. So this was goal number one, to be with your rabbi. Huge honor. Out of that, goal number two is not just to be with your rabbi. What it was to actually to become like your rabbi. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus has this great line on discipleship, and he says this, the disciple is not above the rabbi, but when fully trained, will become, quote, like the rabbi. Meaning Jesus understood this system, and what he was saying is the whole goal of a disciple is not just to be with the rabbi, but it's literally to adopt his whole way of life. So if you're a disciple, your goal, literally, even if you're considered, oh, I'm an individual and I'm unique and I'm like a little snowflake, right? And all this like, still, if you're a disciple, your goal is to talk like your rabbi, to walk with your rabbi and like your rabbi. The goal is to take on his tone of voice. The the goal is to view the world as he views the world, to adopt his philosophy and his theology, to literally become like him from the inside out. Then... The third goal and the final goal is this, to not just be with your rabbi, to become like your rabbi, but if you are a disciple, eventually your goal is to do what the rabbi did, to take what he has started and to move it forward, to reproduce it in the life of others. And that's why there was a saying in the first century where if a rabbi thought you had what it takes, he would eventually look at you and say, now you go make more disciples. You go do what I've done with you and do it with others. Now, history lesson over. Hopefully, if you've been in the church for a while, you're beginning to connect the dots here. Because the whole reason I share that is just to say this. When Jesus Christ walks on the scene in the first century, he walked into this system. And when Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, who also happens to be God in the flesh, calls us to be his disciples, when he calls us to follow him, he expects you will do that. In other words, what Jesus wants you and I to see today is that if you want to be his disciple, 
you need to understand that this means you are to reorient your entire life around these three goals. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and actually to do what Jesus did. I'm going to say just a short word on each of these. I'll draw some implications, and then we'll be done. First thing I want to say is this. If you are a disciple of Jesus, goal number one is for you right now to learn to be with Jesus. Goal number one is not just like to be with Jesus when you die and go to heaven. Goal number one is to learn how to be with Jesus right here and right now. I think back to the text we read in Mark chapter one, where Jesus said, and I quote, come and follow me. This is the top priority. It is literally reorienting your entire life around learning to be with Jesus in the everyday stuff of life, changing diapers and in the presence of Jesus, working and in the presence of Jesus with my spouse or my kids and in the presence of Jesus. On social media, in the presence of Jesus. Returning emails, in the presence of Jesus. On my run, and in the presence of Jesus. This is our first and foremost goal. Question is, how do we do this? If Jesus is not physically here, I mean, literally the Bible says he's set at the right hand of the Father, so how do you be with Jesus in the everyday stuff of life when he's not physically here? Well, in short, I don't have time to dive into this in detail. You learn to be with Jesus by being in a relationship with the Spirit of Jesus. Which means then, please hear me, the first goal of a disciple, as you see on the screen, the first goal of a disciple of Jesus is learning how to live in awareness of and connection to his Holy Spirit. Now, here's another question. How do you do that? Well, simply put, you learn how to live in awareness of and connection to God's Spirit through the spiritual disciplines. And so you learn how to be with Jesus through opening up your Bible and reading it, through praying, through fasting, through silence and solitude. It is through these spiritual disciplines that you open up yourself to the Spirit of God. And that's the point of these, by the way. The whole point of reading your Bible, please hear this. The whole point of reading your Bible is not reading your Bible. Do you understand that? The whole point of praying is you don't just pray because you pray. The end. Disciplines are a means to an end, and the end is relationship with Jesus. And so if you ever get overwhelmed with the Christian life, and you're like, where do I start, man? Like, I, I, yeah, I hear you guys preach and say all this, like, there's so much. Like, start here. Start with waking up in the morning and reading a psalm. Or download the Pray As You Go app that Adam told me about this past week, which is fantastic, by the way. We've really enjoyed that. Which is just, it opens with scripture and meditation and a song, a worship song that stirs your heart towards Jesus. Start with just practicing things like fasting. Even if it's just for a meal or two. Silence and solitude. Prayer. Start with what Jesus himself refers to as abiding in the vine. Where he talks about, by the way, in John 15, and I'll just read this to you, John 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And by the way, if you ever get confused, I heard someone say before about, am I the vine or the branches? Just remember, Jesus is divine. All right? I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do a little bit. No. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is so insulting, Jesus. So much for a self-esteem booster. 
If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and made into something really cute. Nope, they're picked up and they're thrown into a fire and burned. All right. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you will bear much fruit and therefore prove to be what? My disciples. You'll prove to be my disciples. Translation, what Jesus is just saying here is this. Goal number one is to learn to be with him. This is basic, guys, to learn to abide in Jesus as branches abide in the vine. From out of that, and only from out of that, can you move to goal number two, to become like Jesus. Please hear that, by the way. If your first goal is to become like Jesus, you won't do it. First goal is to learn to enjoy Jesus. To realize that he's better than your spouse. He's better than your kids and your grandkids. He's better than sports. He's better than money. And to say, as David said, that, man, better is one day in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. Goal number one is to be with Jesus. And from out of that, goal number two is then to become like Jesus. The Bible word for this is sanctification. A maybe more user-friendly term is what we call spiritual formation. And by that, what we mean is just the process by which you become more and more like Jesus. And the main thing I want you to get here is this. Please hear me. Spiritual formation is not a Christian thing. Because human beings are not static creatures, all of us are being formed spiritually every minute of every day. All you have to do is wake up tomorrow morning and you will be shaped by the stories you believe, by the habits you live into, by the relationships and the people you run with and the environment that you live in. You don't have to try. You'll be shaped by it. And the goal of a disciple, well, let me just say this first off. Think about what that means for a moment. Because if that's true, that you are being shaped every moment of every day by someone or something, the question is not for you today, am I a disciple? The question is, who or what am I a disciple of? You are a disciple. So the question is not, am I becoming like someone or something? The question is, who or what are you becoming like? And I would just ask you to be honest, as you look at your life right now, the trajectory of where it's going, do you like what you see? The goal of a disciple is to not just be with Jesus, but over time to be formed more into the image of Jesus. I think of Paul's word in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says that literally the goal of a disciple is to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, to look like Jesus. We've talked about this before, but the word that Paul uses for transform there is the Greek word metamorphosis, and it's where we get our word metamorphosis. And what it literally is trying to to symbolize is what Paul is saying is that as a disciple, your goal is to be transformed like we see a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's to be that radical. You're to have a radical transformation from the inside out. New mind, new heart, new vision, new desires, all of that. And here's what I want you to understand. In this transformation, God has a major work to do, but we also have a work to do. Is it Augustine, I don't know, who once said, uh, without God we can't, but without us he won't. And you see this all the way, by the way. You should go read Philippians if any of that like sits weird with you. And that'll help you with your theology, I think, on that. But God has a work to do and we have a work to do. And the way that we sum this up is through what we call the intentional spiritual formation paradigm. 
which I know is a mouthful, but hopefully if you've been in our church for a year, you can teach on this. And if you can't teach on this before you space out on me teaching on it again, think about how would I teach this? Because again, the goal of you being a disciple is not just for you to come and decide if you agree with this, but to take it and be able to teach it yourself. If you want to be conformed more into the image of Jesus to become like him, your responsibility is everything on the outside of this triangle. As you see at the top, you need to immerse yourself in good teaching, which means you need to spend time in the scriptures. You need to do what you're doing right now, right? To, to listen to teaching, to learn more about who God is, what he's done in Christ and how that shapes who you are and how you're called to live, to let God inform your relationships, your sexuality, your finances, everything. That's at the top of the pyramid, but here's the deal. Because information alone does not equal transformation, you have to take things and put it into practice. We all know that more information doesn't make you transformed. If that was true, I would be flossing every morning, right? Dentists have told me for years, floss and you won't have to have dentures, but I don't floss. I don't need more information. I need to put into practice what I have if I'm going to change and and keep my teeth whenever I'm older or whatever, right? And so the same is true when it comes to changing and becoming more like Jesus. You can't just hear new information. You have to put it into practice, I think it's Dallas Willard who once said, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And so you have to look and you have to say, how did Jesus live? What did Jesus do? And how can I take his practices and replace those with the bad habits in my life? How do I actually implement them in my own day to day? That helps lead to your transformation. Third, you see in here, community is an important part of this. You are created as a relational being, which means you cannot change apart from community. You need other brothers and sisters, people who are humble and open-hearted and and, and are running after Jesus with you and want to lock arms in that to encourage you and exhort you and at times rebuke you and speak the truth to you in love and hold you accountable. We all need this. These are the things that we are responsible for. And of course, you see right there in the middle is the Holy Spirit. He does the heavy lifting. Apart from him, we cannot change. But again, God has a work to do and we have a work to do. And I hope, by the way, let me just say this to those of you who are haters on this that are like, where did you even get that from? Is that like from a psychology book or something, Jared? Um, Though I do believe psychology backs this up, I would say this is straight from scripture and it's all over. And since we just came through the Sermon on the Mount, I would just say, go look at the Sermon on the Mount because it's all there. The Sermon on the Mount is just that. It's a sermon. It's teaching. Jesus was a teacher. So we're pretty big fans of it here, right? Um, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say in Matthew five nineteen? You have to practice these things before he even gets into the teaching. Just so you know, you got to put it into practice. And then as we said last week, when he ends the Sermon on the Mount, what does he talk about? You got to practice these things. If you practice it, you're like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. But if you don't practice it, you're like a fool and the storms are going to come and destroy you. All right? Community, it's all through the Sermon on the Mount. We lose this in our English translation, but in the Greek, every time that Jesus says the word you, or almost every time in the Sermon on the Mount, it's all in a plural tense. And so when he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, if he was in Arkansan, he just would have said, y'all are the salt of the earth, or y'all are the light of the world. What's he getting at? You have to have others around. You cannot pull this off by yourself. Kingdom life takes community. And then the Holy Spirit, it's in there as well, right? And and Adam taught on this in one of the last teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about asking for help. It's all about going to God and saying, I cannot do this on my own. I need you. 
And, and so this is all in the scriptures. And the point I just want you to see in this, guys, is listen, this is how change happens. Teaching, practice, community, in the power of the Spirit, not overnight, but over time and through suffering. As that is happening, we're then ready for goal number three. And goal number three is we've learned to be with Jesus and become like Jesus. We then also aim at doing what Jesus did. If you are an apprentice of any kind, your goal is to eventually do what your mentor has been teaching you to do. Anybody in here a plumber or an electrician? Anybody? Okay. You know the goal is not just to like learn that stuff. It's eventually to do what you've been taught to do. Uh, I was talking with Justin McGarry this past week, who's a dentist in, in our church, and about all the school that he went through. So many hours of school, so much work, clinicals, exams, interviews. And the whole goal of him doing that was not just to be like, oh, cool, like, thank you for showing me how to do that. That's awesome, the end. The goal was for him to eventually be able to be a, be a dentist, to actually pull teeth. Do you pull teeth? You do that, Okay. Seems like every time I ask Justin if he does something, he's like, actually, yeah, we send that to someone else. So, uh, yeah, to learn how to pull teeth or fill a cavity or whatever else that it is, he had to learn how to actually do those things. That was his goal. And please hear this, guys. The same is true when it comes to the disciple of Jesus. Your goal is not just to look at what Jesus did in the Gospels and say, well, that's cool. The goal is for you to eventually be able to do those exact things. So, what did Jesus do? A lot of stuff he did. I think we can put it on the screen for you. Do we have that where we can put that on the screen? Here's a few of the things. He preached the gospel. He practiced his own teaching by loving his enemies. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He ate and drank with people far from God. List goes on, I think. Do we have another? Can we go to the next slide? Yeah, he practiced spiritual disciplines. He embraced a life of simplicity. He prophesied, he spoke the truth in love, he gave generously. I mean, the list could go on and on, but listen, here's just what I want you to understand. Your goal as a disciple is to be able to do all of that. Not overnight, but over time, through teaching and practice and community and the power of the Holy Spirit, your goal is to be able to do all of those things. Now, here's the reason I share all that. I want you to just think for a moment how different that is from our view of discipleship. I don't know about you, but when I think about discipleship, I think of discipleship training. I grew up in the church, and discipleship training is the thing you'd go to on Sunday nights. Anybody else remember that? You'd go sit in a classroom, and someone would teach you through a Lifeway magazine or something. Yeah, I see that hand back there, Robert. I'm glad I'm not alone. And so that's what I think of. But here's the thing. When you realize what Jesus means by discipleship, please hear me, guys, and we're about to be done. When you begin to wrap your head around this, what you're going to start seeing is to be a disciple of Jesus is way more than a hobby. It's way more than just adding something on to your already busy life. To be a disciple of Jesus is way more than an event on a Sunday or a program. To be a disciple of Jesus literally is to reorient your entire life around these three goals. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. This is what he is calling you to do. Be with him, become like him, do what he did. And therefore, listen, as we begin to come in for a landing today, listen, here's the invitation 
from Jesus to you and me. His invitation to you right now is to move from being a cultural Christian to becoming a resilient disciple. I think of Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. We read it earlier. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever, whoever, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. Guys, that is a direct quote from Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. Anybody know how many times the word Christian is used in the New Testament? Three times. And it's always used from someone outside the church as an insult. We just adopted that word later on. I'm not sure why. Probably Adam would know, church history guru. Anybody want to guess how many times the word disciple is used in the New Testament? 268 times. 268 times. Now let me ask you this. What is the difference between a Christian and a disciple? I'll tell you. At least in the South, a Christian is just to believe the right ideas about Jesus. To like the ideas about Jesus. To try to be a pretty good person, and then when you die, you go to heaven. This is what Christian Smith refers to as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic meaning it's all about what you do, all about your good works. Just not cussing, not drinking, not watching rated R movies, unless, of course, it's the passion of Christ, right? Therapeutic, meaning that to be a Christian is really just about Jesus making me feel better about myself. And deism, meaning Christianity is more transactional than it is relational. Does that make sense? In other words, Christianity is Jesus is my ticket out of hell. Transaction complete. This is the message that most of us are being bombarded with, and I'm telling you, it is creating huge problems in the church right now and in our country. I I read some recent uh, statistics. Listen to this. According to Barner Research right now, 76% of people in America claim to be a Christian. Now, whether you're Republican or Democrat, left or right, just push that aside for a second. Does it seem like when you get on social media or you read the news, does it seem like 76% of the people in our country are reorienting their entire lives around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did? Absolutely not. So how is it that 76% of people claim to be, actually think that they're Christians? Here's the answer. The reason 76% of people think they're Christians is because we have created this idea that you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. I'm going to say that again. We have created the idea that you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. That is very popular in America. It is alien to Jesus and the New Testament writers. In all four Gospels, I was thinking about that. Go do this word study yourself. There is an intentional word that is used to describe the crowds 
And then there's a word to describe the disciples. You see the crowds and you see disciples. You see the crowds, you see disciples all through all four Gospels. The crowds are people who actually were interested in Jesus. They were people who watched Jesus. They were people who had kind of, you know, liked the idea of Jesus. The disciples were those who gave up everything to be with him, become like him, and do what he did. I just want to ask you this morning, which group do you fall into? Are you a part of the crowd? Like the idea of Jesus. Or are you a disciple? I really believe, guys, that the time for cultural Christianity and us as pastors basically trying to serve people who half want to be here, those days are over. And so we really believe that moving forward, there are two groups of people that God is calling us to focus on as a church. The first group is those who are far from God but want to know God. And the other are those who are interested in becoming resilient disciples of Jesus. And so if you're an habitual Christian, whether you're watching online or you're here and you're just like, man, I just kind of want to check in, get a little bit of Jesus thing, keep it at arm's length, you're still welcome to do that if you want, but you need to know that if you're going to be a part of our church, we're going to be pushing you towards becoming a resilient disciple. And by the way, when I say we're going to push you towards that, all I want you to know is this. We are not, as pastors, going to call you to do anything We're not going to ask you to do any more than Jesus has already asked you to do. But we're also not going to call you to any less either. Because that's one of the most unloving things we could do for you. Is to let you sit in this habitual state of immaturity. Where you believe you can be a Christian without a disciple. And so, to end, and you sit on the screen. I think this is important for us to know that Jesus is not looking for converts to Christianity. He's looking for disciples in the kingdom of God. And so this is what we're going to focus on moving forward. This is the way revival takes place, by the way. God transforms cities through a remnant, through a small group of people who want to give themselves to that. And so now is the time to wake up. There's something going on in the night right now. There's a hunger that is brewing. And so listen, business as usual is over. It's over. Habitual Christianity is leading us nowhere. And so my encouragement to you is, man, let's go all in on what it means to actually be a disciple of Jesus. That's where the life is. That's where the adventure is. That's where the joy is. That's where his presence and his power is. So let's go all in. I'm going to invite the band back up here. And just take a moment in your seat before we stand. Let's just go back to that question. Are you a part of the crowd? Or are you a disciple? Have you bought into the lie that you can be a Christian and not be a disciple? 
the invitation from Jesus today. is to surrender your full life to him. To not just give him your Sunday, but to give him your every day. And so I just want to pray right now that maybe for some of you, that the Holy Spirit would quicken your heart, that he would open your eyes to see that he truly is worth going all in for. And if you want more information about that, how, what does that look like, then I would encourage you to come and talk to me. You talk with Adam or Luke. Find us on Facebook, whatever it takes. There is no greater decision you can make than to go all in on Jesus. This is what I want to give my life to as a pastor. And so if you're interested in learning more about this, I would love to, to pray for you and help you any way that I can. And I know I speak on behalf of the pastors when I say that. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray. We'll sing another song and then will be dismissed. Father, I thank you so much for everyone uh, who is here, who has been attentive to hear these words. They're not my words, they're your words. And so I pray that right now through your Holy Spirit that you would drive them into our hearts. I pray that there would be no one in this room today who would be deceived. I just pray against that, Jesus, in your name that no one would have the wool pulled over their eyes. Nobody in here would be too busy for Jesus today. Too smart, too religious, too good, too bad. Jesus, I love how you did not choose the best of the best to be your disciples, but you literally go after the outcast. You are so attracted to our weakness. You chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And so I just pray right now for that person who's watching online or in here that you would take maybe the most foolish person amongst us and that you would save us, that you would draw us into relationship with you. Grant us humility, grant us faith, grant us repentance. It's in your name we pray, amen.